0: Welcome, thank you Pastor B um, for taking care of that and uh, again it's a pleasure to be with you again this morning. Um, I had um, one of uh, of these thoughts in the week you know as we're about to enter our third week of lockdown, um, how glorious it will be when we, we can finally actually be together. And I saw it as kind of like a microcosm of, of the day when we are with the Lord, all the churches from all the ages, all the earth gathered together. And I guess our, our assembling together when we can be with one another, touch one another, um, wipe away all tears maybe, you know, or wipe away our temporary tears, um, that we'll actually be together in, in such a way. And I, I do look forward to that day, maybe soon. Um, when we can actually gather together and, 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 and actually, you know, not trust in the digital universe completely. Um, but yeah, let's, let's, let's be encouraged that that will be a glorious day when we can be together um, in spirit and in truth. So I just want to start, I, I, today I want to start by, by reading our, our passage today. Um, then I want to pray, and then I kind of want to just jump in and and deal with we 're only dealing with a very short passage today so if you if you're you 're prepared at home, please do turn uh, to first corinthians four we 're going to be reading um, that first section of one to five um, it 's a short section but it's it it 's weighty so I will read in your hearing and then I will pray. This is how we should regard us. This is how, sorry, one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. For I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful this morning that, again, we, um, in the midst of difficult times, we can come together at your word and, again, have that, um, uh, I guess, escapism, Father, from the world and its temporary problems into the kingdom, Lord God, and its eternal, um, and its eternal perspective, that which will go on, there, Lord Father, uh, long after the UK has existed as a nation. Lord God. And so we are thankful that, Lord, that we can look at the, even the weightier issues, Lord Father, of what does it mean to be a, a part of the kingdom of God. So even as we do so, we, we pray that, Lord God, you help us in our times. Help us, Lord God, to lift our souls, Father, from that which may very well distract us, Lord God, the, the issues of, of this time. And even beyond the coronavirus, Lord God, maybe people are looking at um, their own job security and financial, all those things, Lord God, that can trouble us. And just look, the Lord Father, into um, the perfect provision that You've made, Father, for us in Your kingdom, and and allow that to be our perspective even now, so that Lord, we will not be anxious for nothing. So have Your way with us. We pray in Jesus' name, Amen. Again, I want to start with um, an intro. Um, obviously our intros help us because, in a sense, they line us up with what we're going to do. And, and and it's things that I, I believe that we really do need to start considering. The first thing that kind of came to my mind when I looked at this text was, um, was just when you thought I was out, they dragged me back in. Is a famous line from The Godfather 2 where Michael Corleone is is trying to make uh, his family legitimate and he's brought back into the deep, dark world of the the here. But again, even now, Paul, when we think we've escaped this topic of having favorites, of having divisions, all the rest of it, he drags us right back in again. Even though it looks like he'd he done and it was all final, and it was all resolved. But again, it's the style of teaching that, again, we have to understand is that it's layering and layering. It's going back and it's, it's, it's that point where if you're, if you're a teacher of any kind, you realize that it's that repetition that's going to help you. You repeat what you've already taught and you go over it again and you add something new. And then when you add that something new, you repeat that the next time along with what you taught before and you keep on going until they've learned and they learn. And this is a whole letter that's layered with the same thing of what it means to be a a united church, what it means to be united in Christ. And not just on earth, as you get obviously to the end of the letter, but in the eternal perspective as well, what it means to be with the Lord in the spiritual realm, in the new heaven and a new earth. So... Paul has now backed up again. And he's backed up and said, well, this issue about the teachers and the favorite leaders, uh, there's, there's a need to reassert the argument. And the need to reassert the argument is that Paul needs to discuss one more thing. The problem expanded. The dark side of division. It seems that the divisions have developed not just because people have favorite teachers. According to charisma or content or whatever it is, you know, remember some people don't like charisma. They like their their teacher's plain Jane. Or whether the content, oh, I like what he does and I like the content that he has and, and, and such. But it seems that the reason why they have favorite teachers is because they don't like other ones. Oh, I don't like that teacher. So in that sense, you, you, you didn't go, but I like this one. So the game is played. The game that is being played is that they'd rather learn, is that rather than learn from the multitude of gospel-centric teachers available to them, the Corinthians were narrowing the gospel to the teacher that was most in tune to them. Oh, I like his style. And at the same time, they were doing this to the exclusion and hostility towards those they felt less in tune with. So, in conclusion to that thought there is that the fault always lay with the messenger and never with the hearer. That means that we would judge a teacher on the basis that we have the perfect ability to judge them and scrutinize them and, and judge them according to nothing less than our own personal taste there's something for us to ref- reflect on here about how we may also do that when now shopping around for churches as well which obviously come with their leaders attached that whole idea of that consumer mentality and and the dark side of that, that obviously when people leave, they leave with with the sense of hostility towards the church they left and then embrace the new church as though it's Jesus Christ himself teaching from it. And that's the dark side that Paul now introduces here is that it's not just that you're playing favorites. You're now choosing to throw shade, as it were, on those you don't particularly like, and you have not chosen. So what's the evidence for this? Well, in particular, it seems that there is an issue between the comparison between Paul's style of ministry and Apollos' to, to be more precise, even though that, you know he's thrown in um, Cephas there in that first chapter, but it's particular that Apollos is actually there in Corinth. I want us to take us to to a couple of scriptures of evidence. We're not going to go deep into this because, again, it's just an introduction. But in 1 Corinthians 1.17, we hear this from Paul. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. So note that, not with words of eloquence, if you remember the Greek background, this was the, this was the seat of learning. This was the seat of wisdom, where they loved rhetoric. They loved to see people's arguments. If you go to Acts 17, you get a great example of what Greek culture was like. They, just, they, knew nothing, they liked nothing better than to sit and hear new ideas. So they loved people who had, I guess, I guess you have to consider it like the TED Talks at the time going down to the, Arap- you know, the, um, the Arapagos, that you, you go and you hear these guys with their ideas about how things need to do. So it was a TED talk. That's what the culture they lived in, high learning. And now he has been compared to someone like Apollos, where if we look at Acts 18, where we see the introduction of Apollos, verses 24 to 25, it says this. So note those things. Alexandria. He was from Alexandria, a renowned seat of learning. You have to note that. So in our own context, we have to look at that as the Ivy League or the Oxbridge style of person. So if, there's a, if there was another person that a Greek could appreciate was someone who came from the seat of Alexandria. Wow, you're, you're, you're from Alexandria. Hmm. Hmm. Okay, I think at the time in the ancient world, it was the biggest library in the world in Alexandria, a place of learning. And note also it says he was fervent in spirit. In other words, there seems that Apollos had a bit of charisma to him as well, the way that he taught. That it came out in his in, in the way that he taught. And so therefore. Considering the fact that Apollos was a younger man from a renowned school of learning, from a a renowned place of learning, and being a fervent in spirit, that there was an appeal to his dynamism. I like this guy. And obviously he comes after Paul, has been in Corinth. And now all of a sudden they're saying, actually, I like Apollos more than I like Paul. To the point where, as we've now learned, that I'm now hostile towards Paul. I don't want him to come back here. I don't want to hear him. We've got better than Paul. So judgments are being made, but the nature of these judgments are so harsh as to make it that some are perceived to be more used by God because of our cultural, our personal preferences. It's not easy to see from this perspective how denominations over the centuries of the church have developed without apostles like Paul to put those fires out all of a sudden where that you know people are creating rivalries where there is no rivalry they're creating preferences where there is no preference there is just the gospel and the way that certain people teach it but what we people are doing is a narrowing it down and so that's what we're going to talk about is that how we've narrowed our perspective on the gospel, how we find we've find we tuned ourselves into that part of it which we prefer. So this week, we need to look back at ourselves again and consider what we may be missing in our own approach to church and ministry that could otherwise be benefiting us. Now let's turn to our text. So verse 1. This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. The description of leaders here is is very good. And again, it's um, quite notable here how he uses two particular words to describe himself. Servant and steward. Why is this helpful? Well, it's helpful because it shows that within the household of God, Paul is considering himself to be a servant. Amongst other servants, we are all, as it were, part of that temple in which we are all serving, our our God. But at the same time, he also uses steward. And steward, therefore, means that even though he's a servant, he's also, as it were, in a supervisory position where he actually teaches and administers that which God has for the other servants, so if you, um, you're, so, in that sense, he doesn't stand merely as a servant, though he obviously he is a servant. He also stands as a steward, someone who supervises the other servants. So what does he do and how is he supervising? Well, he's supervising by handing out the mysteries of God. Well, the mysteries of God aren't mysteries as such, but it's the wisdom of God. Wisdom that if Paul or another apostle didn't write what we have in the New Testament and obviously in the Old Testament as well, the things that we had, we would not know the thoughts of God. So he's a steward of the mysteries of God or the wisdom of God. The wisdom, obviously, we've already been dealing with in the first three chapters, in particular chapter two, which talks about the wisdom and wisdom, obviously, that is very much countercultural to what any culture, let alone Greek culture, would have thought. Today, we find ourselves in, in, in modern, um, the modern Western world where, again, Christian thought is out of vogue. So, we know what this feels like to, be, to have wisdom that's countercultural, to hold to creationism, so to speak, uh, in a world where people are still holding to evolution, even though that obviously has crumbled somewhat. So verse 2, moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. This is an important line in Paul's argument. This is important for us to consider. This is his meat against the Corinthian believers who are judging him in accordance to their perceptions of faithfulness. In other words, what they consider to be faithfulness to them may not actually be faithfulness to God. Faithfulness as perceived by God. The owner of the household may very well be different to our own ideas of what a faithful leader is. For example, we may complain that we do not get as much time with our pastors as we would like. Without considering that time, without considering that the time they take in dealing with you over a lack of your own personal discipline in your life is taken away from the important duties of being devoted to prayer and the ministering of the word there are times where you want the attention of the pastor you want the attention of the leaders not because you have a genuine issue but because you do not want to be discipled and you've chosen not to take it upon yourself to take responsibility of being a disciple and this leads obviously to where Paul now has to say i have to give you milk all the time there is a point in your in your christian life where you're expected to stand on your own two feet just at the same time as we there comes a point in our own lives when we expect our own children to stand on their own two feet it's time that you wash yourself it's time that you now prepare your own breakfast And then even beyond that, now it's time that you prepare those things for others who are less fortunate than you. Or here you are, you help out your little little brother and your little sister. So it's not even just that you're expected to do it for yourself, you're expected to do it for others who are children. And thus, as it were, lighten the burden. As you look at it in the the context of a household, especially if you have lots of children, it makes the burden on mum and dad easier. And it's helpful. And that's the picture that we need of the church. What can I do? And the problem of this is that a pastor who caters to our whims looks more faithful to us than the one that does not. So a pastor who caters to our whims looks more faithful to us than one that does not. And therein lies the problem. To some extent, this relates to the Corinthian situation in the text as well, because our is already there, right? When Paul is writing. Our policy is looking after us. We don't need to listen to Paul. So the plot thickens. Verse 3. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. Paul himself thinks very little of their misconceptions of him. And don't be surprised if your own pastor, if you're listening from another church, or if you're from Ecclesia, do not be surprised if we're not baffled by your misconceptions of us. This is something we need to see develop in all our leaders, a sense of accountability to God first. If I'm worried about what you're worried about, then that might not be me being faithful. I want to take a little time to unpack this and I want to read a fairly large segment of 1 Samuel 15. Because I I like this. I'm 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 you know I'm I'm trying to develop myself in um, in the life and times of David, it's something that I've taken upon myself as, um, as, a, as something I want to study and become very good at. Uh, but I want us to look at Saul. Because I want to see a live demonstration of what a leader who is people-centric rather than God-centric looks like. So if you want to follow me, I'm just reading from 1 Samuel 15 from verses 17 to 25. So you can use it as your reference. You don't have to go there, but I will read it to you. But follow me and be careful because I want us to see details that I think are important. And Samuel said, though you are little in your eyes. Sorry, let me back up and say the context is is that Samuel has now been sent Saul out to fight the Amalekites. And Samuel has said you need to devote these people to destruction. Within the Hebrew term that meant kill everybody. Don't let anybody live. And so Samuel is at home when the Lord has disturbed him in such a way that he says that you need to go and confront Saul because he's rebelling against me. So Samuel has got himself up. He now runs to the place where the battle has taken place and he confronts Saul. And this is what he says. And Samuel said, though you are little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel and the Lord sent you, as, sent you on a mission. So notice, the Lord sent you on a mission and said, go devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. That's that devoted to destruction I was telling you about. So why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me. I have brought Agag, the king of Amalek, of, of the Amalek. And I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But, and there's the but. But the people took off the spoil, sheep and oxen, the best of the things, devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. And Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifice as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination. And presumption is as the iniquity, is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now, therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may bow before the Lord. It's a, it's a dark passage of what it means to be a leader And not getting it right. I like this example because it clearly defines the thin line between being a servant of the Lord and being a steward to the people. So often faithfulness to the Lord, to one Lord, will look like unfaithfulness to the other. But this is the rationale of the Bible. That you can only serve one master. So the apostles are stewards to the servants, but they themselves are a servant to the master. What this means is that it's better that our pastors and our leaders are faithful to God first and foremost and not to the whims of the people. And we need to understand that. We do not need souls in the ministry. We need people who are listening to God first and desiring to obey obey his voice and will rebuke the people, as it were, when they move outside of that will of God. Even when it is for religious purposes. Oh, we're doing it, we're taking these things and we're sacrificing it to God. Yeah, but God doesn't want that. Many times you can come and say, I'm doing it for the purposes of God. And boy, nothing could be further from the truth. So verse 4. For I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. So in Paul's mind, he has considered himself faithful. But this does not mean that he thinks he has gotten off lightly. He may have missed the mark himself. He says, even though I feel like I have a clear conscience towards God, nonetheless, I could have got it wrong. He may have got the whole John Mark issue wrong. He may have been too harsh. Who knows? And so he leaves that to God. He says, I consider myself faithful. As I look at my conscience, I think I've done everything God has told me to do. But that doesn't allow me to say that God has to find me faithful. Because he alone can judge him. So ultimately, it is, he is accountable to God. Only he, only the Lord can judge him. So verse five, therefore do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. So as much as we know about not making judgments beyond our ability, nonetheless, we still do so, right? I know I've fallen in this area. I've judged the book by the cover only to be proven wrong down the line. I want us to turn to another example here. And strange enough, it's the next chapter in the book of Samuel. And it's from verse Samuel 16 about this whole idea of judging beyond our ability and not allowing God to lead us. The setting this time is Samuel now going to anoint the, 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 the new leader of Israel. Saul has been rejected, and now he has been sent to anoint David. But, of course, Samuel doesn't know that he is going to anoint David. He just goes, as the Lord has told him, to the house of Jesse. And there he is, and he wants to see the sons of Jesse. And it says this in 1 Samuel 16, and verses 6 to 7. When the Lord came, he looked at Eliab. When when they came, he looked at Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees, man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. This captures that thought of how God is not just looking at what we perceive as to be the ideal leader. Again, He's looking at someone who is going to be faithful to him, a man after his own heart, not after the people's heart. David obviously has his shortcomings. He's not Jesus. But one of the things you catch about David, if you look through his life, was that he could be stubborn to the core when it came to making sure that God came first. If Samuel needs to learn this, how much more so us? As much as it's important for us to make a judgment in our daily lives, it is also healthy to consider reserving certain judgments to God or allowing that God to, to judge that. So, for example, a person's character may rub us up in the wrong way, such as we disapprove of it. Yet do not think that God also disapproves of it just because you do. So, even though we may personally or culturally not like how somebody carries themselves, we have to give room for God. And we should not detract from what they believe about themselves if they believe they're doing it and they're being faithful to God. And and like I said, we can detect that it's just a personal or cultural preference or our own. Then we got to just leave that. So how do we apply this? There are five short verses, but there's a lot there. And it's going to set us up for what we will be doing obviously after Easter week as we go back to the text in First Corinthians 4 of how we, do we do these things? How do we lift the lid on our cultural and personal blind spots? Well, first of all, we need to consider the judgments we've made about certain people in the church, whether they are leaders or lay people or just regular members. We need to think about what we may dislike about them and determine if it's something that God would also dislike about them. I mean, we, and we've got to be honest. Is this just me or is this a, And this is why the tradition is to think of what we're trying to aim for is to think God's thoughts after him. In other words, to think God's thoughts after him. I mean, this is me leading um, a little bit into, into next Next time in Corinthians, about not going beyond the book. If God hasn't revealed his thoughts on on a certain situation, then we can't elaborate on what God thinks about it. It's as simple as that, it's beyond the book. And this is exactly where he's going to go to in the next few verses. Do not go beyond the book. If God doesn't think, if you're not sure that God thinks the same way that you think, hold your thoughts. And maybe even reconsider them. And again, going back to a few weeks ago about you, you may be disapproving of someone who God will, as I said, dance with in a way that will embarrass you. Because you'll be thinking, man, I didn't know you and that. You and the Lord rode that way. I didn't know that you, and there you are holding up a good friend of the Lord in your heart and you're found wanting. So in other words, are your motives godly? Are you thinking God's thoughts after him? Or are they personally, are they purely personal or cultural? What we find in our text today is the dark side of playing favourites. You know, our cliques, our groups, our clubs may have the exterior of being about enjoying the company of like-minded folk. But we need to check if it doesn't come with the positive exclusion of others. No, the positive exclusion of others. By being their friends, by being their friend, I cannot be friendly with you. And so we end up in a a zero-sum game. A definition of zero-sum is of relating to or being a situation such as a game or relationship in which a gain for one side entails a corresponding loss for the other side. So in that sense, if I'm this person's friend, that means I cannot be friendly to you. And that's how we can treat our relationships. This is not obviously me saying that we, we need to be friends with everybody. No, that's not what I'm saying. But the nature of our relationships, the nature of our cliques and our clubs can be such that it comes to the point where we are positively excluding others. We will not listen to their opinions. We will not listen to who and, 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 and who they are because they're not part of my crew. And we're in a situation where we have to be friendly to them. Because they're not an enemy. And ultimately what happens is what we see in the text. It's not so much that because I love this person, now I have to hate that person. Because they're not in my same school of thought. Like I said, we're now looking at the dark side of favorites in this particular chapter. Last week we looked at that statement that Paul said was all is yours making his expression to the fact that the kingdom the whole of the kingdom is available to you you know why sit in one corner why sit in your old little postcode and say this is all that matters to me all is yours As grand and as positive as this statement may seem, it is closely, when closely examined, there are huge obstacles culturally and personally that make our ability to accomplish what he's asking there harder than we imagined. I mean, when someone says all is yours, I mean, you know, you you, you think that that's a a great invitation. Everybody would want to take it, but it's hard to do it because of who we are in our finite human self, culturally conditioned, personally conditioned to only like certain things, to prefer certain things, which again is not a bad thing in and of itself, unless it leads to what we see here, to the positive exclusion of others. There are huge challenges to doing the all is yours. There's an expression in the Old Testament that goes, may the Lord broaden my tent or enlarge my tent. Ordinary would look at this as being a material expansion. You know, Lord expand the territories of Israel or Lord expand my family, whatever it is. Normally people see it within the material sense. But today I want us to consider this in the area of perspective and perception. Lord, broaden my perspective. Lord, broaden my perceptions of what is right and wrong in your kingdom. What am I missing from the gospel as a result of my inability to value things in accordance to the kingdom? And I tell you, I'm missing stuff from the kingdom and I know you are too that otherwise have been given for my benefit. So, Let me just make one disclaimer here. This is not an invitation to indulge every flake with their half-baked theological ideas. That's not what I'm talking about at all. Again, Paul will later go on in the letter to talk about discernment, but right now I'm not saying that everything that's got God in front of it or Jesus at the end of it ultimately ought to be considered. That's not what I'm saying. I'm not saying let's throw open the doors and let's consider everything especially within the liberal camps of of theology. No, that is not what I'm saying. I'm not trying to say swing the doors wide open. I'm saying we've discernment, we need to make advancements and enjoy the fullness of what God has in store for us. Application-wise, it may actually look like you taking seriously different aspects of the ministry of the church. So taking something more seriously that you weren't maybe taking seriously before. Consider evangelism as an area. Undersubscribed. Maybe prayer as something that you maybe need to expand on. As far as helps is concerned, we are oversubscribed, but that's good. We need people to help out and do the manual things and get things done. But if we're talking about God giving us talents in which he expects us to grow, then it may be that you need to keep doing those things that help the function of the church in a practical way and actually start looking at those lesser subscribed aspects of the church and say, I need to be involved there too. All is yours. It may also mean that we need to maybe consider other ministries or or teachers and people that we might ordinarily not listen to and allow ourselves to be stretched to try and understand the gospel as they present it as well. Again, like I said, it's not an invitation to every flake, but for those who are truly gospel-centered in all that they do. There was no rivalry between Apollos and Paul, yet they presumed there was one in their own minds so maybe we need to consider again a deeper style of teaching maybe we need to consider maybe a more dynamic more charismatic style um, charismatic style of teaching in order to encourage us even though personally it may not be our cup of tea but this is what it means to embrace the all is yours so this is us this is a, there's a lot there to do. This is not the kind of thing that you do by pointing fingers at the other. Remember, this is an application for you personally. This is your time to go and consider what this might look like in your life. If I respond to this message, if I want to do this message, how will you broaden your perspective and your perceptions of the kingdom? That's available to you. Which areas are you not going into? Which areas are you avoiding purposefully? How are you judging your leaders? Are you judging them on the basis of, are they, are they taking care of me? Or are you judging them on the basis that I hope they're being faithful to God first and foremost. So much to consider, so much to do. May the Lord give us grace to do so according to his wisdom, amen? Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful for your word, dear Lord God. As short as it is, there is so much, dear Lord God, for, for us to kind of sit and mull over and say, Lord, we need your help to do this. Father, in the midst of, again, like you said, the distractions of the world, there is, in fact, real work still that needs to be done. And even now, dear Lord God, as, we, as our attentions may be drawn away, Father, from the issues of this world into the issues of the kingdom, dear Lord God, where we now have to say, what does church mean to me? What does being involved in ministry mean to me? How not do I need to change and broaden my own tense so that I can really embrace that all is yours? How am I judging my leaders? How am I putting them under my own thumb and my own scrutiny and in a sense, tempting them to be unfaithful to God? Lord, help us, Father, with our own discipline. May we be learning and growing, dear Lord God, so that we are taking it upon ourselves more and more Um, to to apply the gospel to our life. There's no professionals here, Lord. We're all just trying to do um, the best thing. And like you said, we're all servants ultimately, even though some are called to be stewards. Yet, Father, we're all serving you and we ought to do so faithfully. And maybe, Lord God, if we scrutinize ourselves, we we may not be able to even say like Paul can say that I believe I've been faithful, but I'm not going to say that, you know, in a way that God has to agree with me. But at least to be able to say, I've looked at my life and I believe I am faithful. And that's a place where, Lord, we all should be striving to be. I've run the race. I've done all that I'm supposed to do. To to be able to have that statement, even at the end of our lives, that we can say those things. That I've actually run the race. I've done and I've been faithful. Lord, help us, we pray. To do these things, dear Lord Father, according to your purpose and your, your will for us. So have your way, Lord, we pray, even now as we just take this time to reflect. May we dig deep, dear Lord Father, look at our own relationships, look at our own relationship to the church, even wherever we are, dear Lord Father, and start to reconsider how we need to make changes in our own perceptions so that we can do church better. It'd be more, Lord God, of what we see, Lord Father, at the end in revelation of a church with different languages and different different cultures all coming together with no friction because there's just one Lord. So Lord, this is our hope, you know, Father, that we know we're not going to get it right, Lord God. This is not about us striving to get it. You know, the perfect church, Lord God, you know, we won't fall into that trap. But Lord, Father, we, we will be able to say we are, we are definitely striving towards making this as real as possible. So, Father, we thank you that your spirit has given us the strength to do this. Lord, Father, it's not that you've just commanded it through the apostles, but you've given us your spirit. You've given us the son and showed us how committed you are because he went to the cross. And we see a demonstration of your love for us. So, Father, with your triune love, Lord God, emboldening us to do these big steps, Lord, let us take these steps in faithfulness towards your perfect will. In Jesus' name, amen.